you guys. Good morning. morning. Everybody glad to be in the house of the Lord? Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Are there any children that need to be dismissed at this time? I think Colleen is back there ready to do something with the children today. So if there's some small ones who do need to be dismissed, they are more than welcome to do so. It's good to see you guys. It's It's a joy to be in God's house for the first Sunday of worship in a new era in the United States. Uh, Roe versus Wade is now no longer the law of the land. That, that could be a, a great sound of praise right there. Amen. Amen. Uh, now, I, I say that with, with this caution. Abortion is not outlawed in the United States. It's still here. It's just not a national federal right, quote unquote. So abortion is still around. It's just that the states will decide it. The people will decide it. Here in the state of Tennessee, we're blessed. We have trigger laws that are already in place. Uh, I think who was somebody was telling me there are seven abortion clinics in the states that are now getting ready to shut down. Is that what I've heard? Something like that. So uh, the encouragement for us as Christians is this, that we are in a new time. Really, not, I mean, nothing radically new, but we're in a new time in the fact that we are now we now have a different responsibility as God's people. Uh, there's a lot of turmoil and confusion in our country over this. And it's from people who have grown up in a generation or generations, plural, 50 years worth of, uh, of history now. Uh, there are people in this country who don't understand what it means to have a country where abortion is not legal. They're going to have a lot of confusion. And I saw a lot of that confusion Saturday morning. If anybody drove around the Putnam County Courthouse Square Saturday morning, if you were down that way, some of y'all nodding, it was an ugly scene. Ugly scene. Ugly. 
I just, my heart broke for the signs that I saw, the, the anger that people were screaming. Uh, there was a protest and it was not a pretty protest. So we're in a season here of how do we as Christians respond to that? Christians, we're going, we've got a new responsibility, a different responsibility. So, uh, let's just continue to hold dear to the faith. Let's hold dear to the truth of the scriptures and let's behave as Christ behaves. Amen. Firm, get compassionate for those who are confused. Let's pray for them. But I, let's, let's, let's open this time of prayer with a prayer of gratitude, but also I want us to pray for uh, our Lord's uh, guidance for us as well. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning in a new time uh, for many of us, uh, but in your perspective, Lord, 50 years is nothing. But it has taken 50 years to come to this point to take bad law and turn it back around. Lord, the, the, the reality of taking the life of innocence is abhorring. It, it's an abhorrent thing in your sight, and, and we see it as an ugly reality. But we are so grateful that now it is not considered a right in this country. That's a joy. And so, God, I pray that you would direct the legislatures of our states and the people of the population of this country to speak to this truth that life is yours and you grant it as a gift. And when we take that, especially when we take life of an innocent fetus, an innocent child, we are destroying your image. And that is a horrible thing. And so, God, we thank you for now being in a time where that is not legal nationwide as a blanket rule for this horrible thing to occur. We thank you for what has happened in when, when truth actually stands up and is revealed. It took 50 years for truth to come out, but truth has come out in the legislature or in, in the courts, in the judicial system. Truth has finally risen to the top. And so, God, I pray for your mercies on this country, and I pray for your mercies on us as your church to navigate these waters well, to navigate these new times, to honor your name, and to do so with compassion and grace, but also truth and reason. And so this is why we depend on you, Lord. Use us as you need to use us. Use us for your glory to bring truth and compassion to those who are hurting. That's our new responsibility, even greater than before. So help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 16. As we continue in this wonderful gospel, has it, Matthew 16 has really turned out for me to be an amazing chapter to just really uncover uh, much of who Jesus is and the foundation of the gospel here. Uh, our place as witnesses to testify to the reality of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, fundamental to the faith. And so Matthew 16 is a crucial chapter in Scripture. And so the previous passage that we looked at last week, uh, verses 13 through 20, that that is a significant part of Scripture. It is. Verses 13 through 20 is, a, a, a you could say, a cornerstone of the gospel. 
Uh, it reveals the crucial role of God the Father in Peter's proclamation, his confession that Jesus is the Christ. And we took away from that that likewise, it's the role of God the Father in us as we confess this truth. It's impossible for us to see this or to even declare it apart from the will of the Father. We can't do this on our own. It's just reality. How many of us know people who confess Christ, confess Jesus, but their hearts are not transformed by the Holy Father? That's the, that's the issue here in this chapter. I mean, we spent three Sundays in verses 13 through 20. We spent three Sundays in that passage, and I thank you for your patience. Not many churches would have that tolerance to spend three weeks in just a few verses. But thank you for that. Uh, as we walk through, because there's a lot of theological ramifications here between this interaction between Jesus and Peter at Caesarea Philippi. There's a lot of theological depth there that we had to uncover. Thank you for your patience in that. And, and we come away here from these weeks of, of introspection, these weeks of uncovering the truth, that one's understanding of who Jesus is, one's praise and worship of Jesus as the Christ, and even one's understanding of the role that we play as Christians and the church plays in this grand God-designed plan of restoration. That's, that's what those passages help us see. Now, we are confessors. We're confessors. We're proclaimers of what? Of the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's our role. That's our place in all of this. Correct? Jesus' ministry now as we come into verses 21 through 23, it, it now focuses on his end, the end of his earthly ministry and the beginning of the church. So from this point forward in Matthew's gospel, Matthew moves us past this critical encounter between Jesus and Peter and the other disciples, and it begins the final months of Jesus' ministry in his life. From this point forward, we're looking at about maybe around six months of his life. Matthew 16, 21 begins what Bible scholars see as the third and the final section of Matthew's gospel. When we read here in verse 21, from that time forth, what we're seeing here from that, if you want to underline that, from that time forth, this now begins Jesus's journey. He's looking to Jerusalem where he will enter as the triumphant king in Matthew 21. And so from this time forth in the gospel, we'll be looking to Jerusalem and we'll be looking there with Jesus as he fulfills what he said back at the beginning of Matthew 16, the sign of Jonah, his suffering, his death his burial, and his resurrection. That's what we're leading up to from Matthew 16 on. And so this passage will be the first of other times that Jesus prepares his disciples for eventual suffering and death and resurrection. There'll be more scenes like this between now and the end of Matthew's gospel where Jesus is going to be doing something intently focused for his disciples, preparing them for his departure. That's where we are here. So from this point forward in Matthew's gospel, I'm going to ask that you come prepared to hear from God's word what it is that we 
what role we have as his church. That's going to be a lot of what's here because as Jesus prepares the disciples, he's actually preparing us as well. Will you stand with me as we read Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23 together, okay? From that time forth, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Verse 23, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There's a lot here, folks. Y'all ready? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. These few verses here of Jesus and Peter, we, we saw where Peter is praised by confessing who Jesus is and rightly confessing that truth. But now we see where Peter with good intentions, now becomes a hindering block to the gospel truth. He becomes a hindrance to Jesus fulfilling his ministry. And so, Lord, there's a lot here that we must see because what Jesus must suffer through, what he must endure, is so important to our hope of salvation even now. And so, God, I pray this morning you would search our hearts as you speak to us in your word. How many times are we like Peter? How many times do we speak the mind of Satan and not even realize it? Because it is good intentions that we have. So God, use this moment for your glory. Please be here with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. You see, here in Matthew 16... 21 and 22, Peter quickly abandons his praise-filled confession of Jesus. You see that in verse 22? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He's responding to what Jesus says in verse 21. Jesus is now instructing his disciples of what must happen. And if you look here in verse 21, he says, he's showing his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to endure suffering, to suffer under the cruelty of the elders and the chief priest, and he must die, he will be killed, and then he must be raised from the dead. And this is what Peter's responding to in verse 22. Peter, he quickly abandons his confession of Jesus as the, as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and in doing so, he denies that he's the Christ and that he should ever suffer. Quick turnaround in Peter here. Here Peter, where Peter was praised by Jesus, now he's rebuked by Jesus, and there's a tension here. Now, following this rebuke, Jesus will actually call his disciples to be sacrificial in their discipleship. This is going to be next week in verses 24 through 28. And Jesus is going to be calling all disciples to imitate his own suffering and his own self-denial. That's not what Peter's doing here in verses 22 and 23. That's the problem here. Look here at verse 21. From that time forth, Jesus shifts his focus here on instructing his disciples to teach them who they were. This is, they were his special audience his particular student base. They were his disciples. 
Jesus is teaching them the necessity of the gospel mission that Jesus was undertaking. And the significance of this phrase here, from that time forth, this was a divine necessity. That's what we're seeing in verse 21. There was a divine necessity that had to become clear to the disciples about who Jesus was. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, but their perception of who he was in this role is misguided. And Jesus is correcting some misunderstandings here. From this point on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is not just a rabbi or a teacher. If you're taking notes, if you're, if you make notes in the margins of your Bible, this is what I have in my Bible from, I have it in the margin that this is the intro to section three. And from this point forward, Jesus is no longer referred to simply as rabbi or teacher, but he's now referred to as Jesus the Christ. Every time you see it, just notice that it's as if a new beginning is initiated here. Uh, For the first time in his ministry, and remember at this point in chapter 16, this is about two and a half years into his three-year ministry. Jesus is referred to by both his name and his title, Jesus Christ. We're going to see this. The foundation is laid here for Jesus' true identity. His disciples will begin to learn a valuable lesson. How Jesus is the Christ How will he be who he is? Yes, Peter has now declared who Jesus is, but now they have to see how Jesus is the Christ. Not just by name only. There's something here that he does. How is he the Christ? Jesus will teach his disciples how to accept a necessary role, the necessity that the Christ must suffer. That's an important point here. The Christ, who is Jesus, must be a suffering Savior, not just a worshipped and adored Messiah. Think about this. Peter was praising Jesus just verses before. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that was language of worship and praise. Yet just a few verses later, and I would argue we don't have the... I mean, the timeline is not clear here. It's probably very close didn't take him long to, now, Jesus, don't do that. How many of us would do that to our Lord? But we do. <laughs> don't we rebuke our Savior all the time? And Peter's having to learn this lesson. Verse 21, from that time forth, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Must go. I mean, here's the irony of this necessity. Think about this. Certainly, if you were the Messiah, if you were God's son, certainly as God's son, as God's Christ, coming to suffer, in our minds, the Messiah would come, the son would come to conquer suffering, not to endure suffering. He comes, we would think that the Messiah comes to triumph over Satan's rule over creation, not lose at the hands of satanic rule. That's what we're seeing in verse 21. But this is the irony. The way of thinking about the Christ is a human thinking. It is the mind of man, not the mind of God. Certainly, we would think you're the Messiah, you're the king. You would not suffer at the hands of satanic enemies, would you? You see that in verse 21? I mean, the phrase must go in verse 21, if you're underlining anything, underline this, the phrase that he must go, it literally means to compel. In other words, Jesus was bound to this journey. 
He must go. He had no choice. It was the Father's will. There's a sense, actually here in verse 21, using that language of he must go, it, it was a common phrase, a common use in apocalyptic literature of the day. You know what apocalyptic literature is? It's, it's end times destruction. That's what apocalyptic literature is. So in verse 21, the language of that he must go to Jerusalem is... The, that type of wording was very common in apocalyptic literature. And here's what it means. I mean, Matthew's using this phrase for a reason. Apocalyptic literature of the day used this phrase and this term to emphasize a divine necessity of an event that was occurring. If the apocalypse is coming, it's because there's a divine decree that this is now the end, this is now the punishment. And so that language of must go is a, implies a divine necessity. There's no other choice here. Another way to render this language if, in, in verse 21 is you could almost say that, that he began to show his disciples that it is the will of God that he go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. It was the will of God for him to do this. He was bound to it. He did not have a choice. He willingly submitted. He was control, uh, controlled, bound, directed by the will of his father. He must go. In other words, must go equals the will of God. That's what we're saying here, verse 21. So what is Jesus telling his disciples? He's saying that it is the will of my Father, it is the will of God that I go to Jerusalem. I must go. I mean, had these disciples remembered their studies as elementary school students in the prophet Isaiah, they would have understood that the suffering servant was one of the great prophet was predicting as the Messiah, right? In Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6, these students of, of Jesus, they would have been good Jewish students in elementary school, you would hope. How many of us remember what we learned in kindergarten and first and second grade? We probably remember more than we realize, but fundamentally, a, a good student in Jewish schools learning in the synagogue would have definitely studied Isaiah, and here's what Isaiah would have reminded them. In Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their face, hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he was, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. If you were a disciple of Jesus, certainly you would have understood Isaiah's prophecy as a schoolboy. That here the Messiah is in front of them. He has been declared rightly by Peter. You are the Christ the son of the living God. Did they forget that the Christ, the Messiah, was to be the suffering servant? Apparently they did. I mean, here's the big lesson that Jesus is teaching his disciples. And it is the lesson that we as his church must learn. Remember back in verses 18, Jesus declared that on this rock, I will build what? My church. So we must learn this lesson too. Jesus, the Christ, must suffer, must suffer, as it is God's will for him to suffer as a victory over the satanic occupation of God's created order. The way that God conquers satanic forces is through the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
suffering. That, that, that blows the, the human mind, doesn't it? I mean, in no way here does this imply that Jesus the Christ or God the Father is in any way inferior to satanic occupation forces. No way. But in our mind, if you suffer under the hand of satanic forces, you must be weaker than them. And here's the truth of the gospel. This is what Jesus is trying to teach here. No, it's the exact opposite. It's the enduring the suffering and this, and the penalty of death under the control of satanic enemies of God. By that suffering, I now conquer them. Y'all, y'all hearing that? This is what Jesus is teaching us here. I mean, on the contrary, think about this. Satan does not dictate the terms of surrender to God the Creator. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Satan does not dictate the terms of surrender to God. It is God the Father, the Creator of all, who dictates to Satan what must occur. That's what's happening here. God dictates that Jesus the Christ, the suffering servant, must. It is the will of the Father He must go. He must suffer as sinful man deserves to suffer. Why is Jesus the Christ suffering this way in verse 21? Because he's enduring the suffering. He must endure the suffering that we rightly deserve. In order that we as sinful men should no longer pay for our sin. You see the issue what Jesus is teaching here? Yet, yet this, see, Jesus the Christ is the victor here. Right? His suffering is not a defeat. His suffering is a victory. I mean, the theological idea here of Jesus is the Christus victor, if you want to use the Latin. Jesus, the Christus victor, who atones for the sins of men. Christus victor emphasizes Jesus' triumph over Satan and the liberation of sinners from bondage and corruption. So in order for us to be freed from the bondage of sin and the corruption of the fallen world, this is why Jesus says in verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go. It's the will of the Father. He has no other alternative. He must go. And this is the lesson that Jesus' disciples, and even we as his church, let's just be honest, we struggle to embrace this truth in Scripture that the the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, Jesus Christ himself, must go. Must go. Let's look here in verse 22. And as Jesus is teaching these things in verse 21 to his disciples, notice Peter's response in 22. And he took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This is Peter. How many of us do that to our Lord, though? No, Jesus, that won't ever happen. Not while I'm your 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 faithful servant, Lord, that will never occur. We're just as guilty, aren't we? Just as guilty. I mean, Peter expresses the struggle here that all who encounter Jesus Christ, we all deal with it. I mean, certainly this Jesus, this Christ, the Savior of the world, according to Peter, should not bow to the evil corruption of the world. Definitely don't bow to the evil of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes who are going to kill you. You don't have to bow to them, Jesus. And what is Peter opposing here? Peter's actually opposing God's divine plan. He's opposing God's divine will. That'll keep you awake at night, won't it? 
Am I opposing God's will? I mean, the evidence is overwhelming here. And now imagine if you're found guilty of a crime. Imagine that you're found guilty. Okay, you've run a red light. Now you got to stand before the judge. And that judge is mean. That judge is going to put you away for life. I mean, you're guilty. They've got pictures. You've run the red light. You've probably driven through a crosswalk at a school and now kids are running scared. Imagine this. What would you do with somebody who did that? Put them away. You've scared the school children now. The judge is going to pass judgment. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. You're sentenced to death row. Whatever it is you've done, you're now before the judge and you're sentenced to death row. You have been found guilty. This is not simply a slap on the wrist, but an extreme punishment. You are extremely guilty. Imagine that scenario. You must die for your crime. Of course, the punishment for running a red light is not death, but you see my point. But in our culture of this day, I mean, the slight, the slightest little thing you do, according to some on the left, you may have to die. And actually, some on the right would do the same thing. How dare you? We may have to face that. But think about this. You're guilty, and, and, and the judge is going to sentence you to death, and someone presents you with the only option for liberation from this condemnation. Someone is offering you the only option out of this death sentence. This person will get you free from prison, and they will keep you from going to the death chamber, and this person saves you. And then you dare to confront that person and try to stop him from doing it. What are we thinking? Can you imagine that scenario? You're guilty. You're going to the death chamber. And someone says, I've got a plan to fix this. You don't have to go. And then you turn around and say, oh, no, stop. Don't do that. Don't worry about me. I've got it under control. That's what Peter's doing here. That's the illustration I'm trying to get us to see. Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Well, if it does not happen to our Lord, then he's disobeying, verse 21, where he must go. That's the problem with Peter's rebuke. I mean, this is Peter's problem. Despite Peter's Remember, he, he, he was divinely inspired and he was divinely initiated to praise Jesus as the Christ. Peter was not fully embracing, not fully embraced by this truth yet. He's still working it out, apparently. I mean, the reality of who Jesus was did not grip Peter so completely that he failed. I mean, the, the concerns of the human mind in Peter still had a tight grip on him. I mean, perhaps Peter took this newfound responsibility as the rock of the church. I mean, he was already the leader of the twelve. And maybe he took this newfound responsibility as the rock of the church a bit too far here in verse 22. Maybe that's what he's doing. I mean, he felt a pastoral responsibility for the disciples. He felt a pastoral responsibility for the church that Jesus was building. No, Jesus, if you go and suffer now, the church that you just declared won't happen. Maybe that's what Peter's thinking about in 22. This is perhaps why Peter took Jesus by aside so as not to embarrass his Lord in front of the others. I mean, verse 22, he, Peter took him aside to rebuke him. Took him aside. Uh, perhaps Peter felt the responsibility to help Jesus see the fresh perspective of God's mercy here. Because when we look here at verse 22, where it says, And Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord... How do we understand far be it from you? Basically, another way to say this is mercy is yours, Lord. In other words, clearly, 
This word, far be it from you, it actually implies merciful to you. The Lord be merciful to you implies that God's mercy should be upon Jesus in this time. Certainly God will give mercy. God in his mercy would never permit his Christ, his son, to endure suffering, would he? So Peter's understanding here was that God is a merciful God, and certainly as a merciful God, far be it from you, Lord, mercy upon you, Lord, this will never happen. That's what he's thinking. The point of Peter's private rebuke was how impossible it would be for God's divine mercy to allow his Messiah to suffer. Verse 23, now Jesus has to respond to this. Where he says here in verse 23, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We're going to spend a little bit more time here closing out in verse 23. There's a lot here. Y'all ready? I mean, Jesus rebukes him. He, his rebuke is, a, is teaching an important lesson. Y'all ever teach your children something by rebuking them? Has your employer ever taught you something by reprimanding you for something you didn't do right on the job? That's what Peter, that's what Peter's enduring here. I mean, Jesus is rebuking him by teaching him something. I mean, we not only err when we follow our worst thoughts. Here's the lesson. We often and more often we, 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 we err when we follow our best thoughts. I'll let that settle here. What's Jesus saying here in verse 23? Because think about it. When Peter rebukes Jesus in verse 22, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. What was his intent? I want the best for you, my Lord. I want the best for you. Certainly our God who is merciful would never allow you to suffer. That was G that was Peter's intent. That was a good intention, wasn't it? Well, what is Jesus teaching Peter and to us in verse 23? He, I think his response here to Peter is sometimes... We err the greatest and the strongest when our thoughts have the best intentions. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. I mean, Peter's best thought was for Jesus' safety and his protection. But this was a big problem for our Lord. You know, we would be scolded for turning away someone's good intentions of protecting us. How dare you turn away my intent to keep you safe. So now all of a sudden, the person that was trying to be held safe is now rebuked for not allowing someone to keep them safe. It's a no-win situation. You see the twisting here? I mean, remember the first words of Jesus to Peter back in Matthew chapter 4? Jesus said to Peter back in Matthew chapter 4, come follow me. And what does he say here in Matthew 16, 23? Similar words, get behind me. First he says in Matthew 4, come follow me. And now here in Matthew 16, get behind me. Now, if you're wanting, I mean, if you're a Greek scholar and you want to look this up, when you compare the phrase in Matthew 4, 18 and 19 to what's here in Matthew 16, 23, come follow me and get behind me in the Greek, they actually rhyme. A little subtlety there. But think about this. What, what is Jesus saying here in verse 23? Get behind me, Satan. A disciple's place is to follow their master. Not to be in front of him, not to lead him, but to follow. Don't patronize your Savior. You follow him. Get behind me, Satan. A, a disciple's place is to obey him, not to correct him. I mean, the place of all disciples of Christ is a place of obedience, even and especially when 
The words are hard to believe or the words are hard to like. If our Lord speaks it, we obey it and we follow it, even if we don't like what it says. Peter did not like the fact that Jesus was saying, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And Jesus is teaching Peter in verse 23, get behind me, Satan. You see, Peter wanted to jump ahead of his Lord. His words were well intended, but the place of all disciples is to obey their master and their Lord. And and especially when the words are not to your liking, we obey the words of our Lord, period. I think the point here in verse 23 is, Peter, you obey my words, even though you don't like it. Peter struggled with this. Nothing, no matter how loving, however, even Christ-honoring can mislead God's people as much as our best intentions. No matter how loving the intent is, if our words contradict Christ's word, then we are in danger of heresy and error. Oh, well, that doesn't sound so bad. That's not so bad. Well, according to Jesus, to Peter, that is bad. Do you see what we're seeing? Jesus calls Peter Satan here. Remember that Jesus got to know... Satan, the tempter, very well in the fourth chapter of Matthew's gospel. Jesus got to understand and recognize the tempter's voice. The tempter is manipulative. The tempter is cunning. He will speak loving words. Satan will speak compassionate words, reasonable words. But Jesus' response to Peter in verse 23 shows us that it's the very compassionate nature, the good intent of Peter's words that are the most dangerous temptation that come from Satan himself. Why? Because he was trying to stop what Jesus must do. I mean, Satan tempts with the sensational. Remember, we saw this when we're dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were demanding signs of sensationalism, and that's what Satan tempts us with here. He tempts with sensationalism, but he also tempts with subtle good intentions. Temptation, think about this, it allures us to be above the ordinary, to avoid suffering. Jesus says, I must go and suffer, and the temptation was, oh Lord, you will never suffer. And that was a sinful thought. I mean, temptation here, it it allures us. It says, come above the ordinary, come above the suffering. Jesus recognized this temptation here in Peter's words. And he says, because Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Peter tempted Jesus to avoid suffering. Peter was the voice of the tempter himself, Satan, here. To follow an easy path. Now, how many of us tempt others with good intentions here, won't you take the easy path? That's too difficult. Won't you make it easier on yourself? How many of us have used that? Good intentions, but maybe the easy path is not God's will. I mean, a big lesson here is this. It's evident here in Jesus' rebuke in 23. He's rebuking Peter because he's rebuking the voice of Satan. I mean, Jesus... What, what is, the, what is the, the purpose here of, of warnings? I mean, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's warning, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. What's the purpose of this type of a warning? It's a test for Peter. I mean, Jesus is testing the spirit of Peter's intent here with his words in verse 23. Jesus is testing the spirits. John the Beloved, right, in, in 1 John chapter 4 
John learned this lesson from Jesus in testing the spirit. We read in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Now, a little side note there from John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. There will be a time in this pulpit that we will probably have to address the coming of the Antichrist. And I want to refer us back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. I think... The Antichrist here is more a spirit of Antichrist. Yes, there is a person predicted as the Antichrist, but the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. That's what we're warned to watch against. Rabbit trail. Future advertisement for passages coming later, especially Matthew 25 and following, okay? I mean, think about this. What has happened? Peter here, when, when Jesus rebukes him, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance. Peter has consumed the leaven of the Pharisees. Remember that leaven of the Pharisees in verses 11 through 12? I mean, what verses 22 and 23 in, in Matthew 16 show us is that a Christian can one moment glorify God and in another moment defy him. It's a warning. It's a reality. I mean, Peter is the rock who can one moment be firm and in another moment be a stumbling hazard. Strong Christians become devils without warning. And it's a slippery slope with good intentions and compassionate thoughts. A lot of mommers are going, mm, yeah. You. Good intentions and compassionate thoughts are what we're seeing here are often the stumbling block of the devil. I mean, when, when we point to Jesus as the rock, the Christ, the ultimate son of the living God, we are rocks. And, and we, when, when we are against Jesus' clear words, no matter how comfortable they are, when we try to defend Jesus or his church away from suffering, we become stumbling blocks. We're devils. Verse 23, here's the latter half here. Jesus says to Peter, you are a hindrance to me. You're a hindrance to me. I mean, Peter was a big problem here. The Greek word here for hindrance is the word that we get scandal from, scandalon. I mean, Peter was scandalous to Jesus. It's as if Jesus tells his rock, Peter, you're my special problem, Peter. Y'all have a special problem in your family? Y'all have that loving child that is your special problem child? You may have, you have somebody at your work. You've got that special problem employee or coworker, schoolmate, whatever. You know, you know, that's who Peter is here. He's a big problem. I mean, Peter was Satan's mouthpiece in this engagement. I mean, Satan is the cheerleader for human concerns. That's, that's how Satan works. He, he takes our minds and he focuses them on our needs and our concerns and turning us away from the will of the Father. 
I mean, Satan sets our minds on things, to, uh, on our human needs, our human concerns to distract us from the concerns of God. And humanity concerns itself. What, what do we as humanity concern ourselves with? What is a human concern? We want success. We want greatness. We want comfort. We want to live well. Agreed? How many of us are living in a shack out in the woods somewhere with no heat and no food? No fresh water? Nothing. No, we want comfort. We like nice houses that aren't going to fall in on us. We like running water. We like going down to the grocery store and getting food whenever we need it. And the devil can take that and twist it. I mean, God, on the other hand, what is God, what is God's concern? I mean, God, he's the cheerleader for his divine will. I mean, God concerns himself with something else. He concerns himself with lowliness. He concerns himself with sacrifice. He concerns himself with suffering. Those are God's concerns. Now, lowliness, in other words, lowering your status below someone else to be a servant, to even to the point of sacrifice and suffering, that is not the human mindset. But it is God's. And that's central to the gospel. A recurring theme in Matthew's gospel is that the human mind is the mind of Satan. And it leads up. In other words, the human mind, the mind of Satan, focuses on exalting the self. Let's exalt ourselves. In contrast, God's mind, the mind of Jesus, actually leads downward, lower, into humility, into sacrificing the self for others. Y'all hearing the words here? That's what Jesus is saying here. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Again, what do men think of? What do we as human beings set our mind on? We want to promote ourselves. We want to secure ourselves. That's the mind of Satan, the mind of man. But what is, what is the mind of God? Because as Jesus says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God. The mind of God is lowliness, sacrifice, suffering, humility. And that's our Lord. That's who Jesus is. And that's who Peter has forgotten. And so the lesson that Jesus is teaching Peter is, remind, remind yourself, remember who I am. I am the Christ who must suffer. I am the man of sorrows, the suffering servant. And that's the identity of who I am. Now, as we walk this journey with our Lord as Christians, as His church, are we keeping our mind on the things of God or is our mind, with good intentions, really following the mind of man, which is trans actually polluted and corrupted by the mind of Satan. I'm going to let that sink in for a minute. Are there times even now where we have good intentions by protecting someone and caressing someone and having, we want to protect you, we want to make you better, 
Are we actually the mouthpiece of Satan using the mind of man here? And have we forgotten the mind of God? Peter was rebuked for that. He had to learn a lesson. Jesus Christ must suffer. And as we go into the next passages next week, verses 24 um, through 28, Jesus is now in next week, come back next week, we're going to see that Jesus is now commanding, if you want to be one of mine, you must take up your cross and suffer with me. Now that goes totally against the prosperity gospel message, doesn't it? I mean, there's a big difference. I mean, if you want to discern uh, the words of God, the mind of God versus the words of Satan, the mind of man, just look at the messages that are coming out from a church, quote unquote, and are they promoting the self? In other words, is it a... a, a in other words, is, is the message, is the sermon a motivational speech or is the message a sermon from the Word of God? Because if it's a message from the Word of God, I promise you we're going to walk out of here not really feeling good about ourselves as sinners. Now, we can take joy in that. We can take joy in our Christ, but we take joy because He's rescued us from sin. <laughs> but it's not a mo- motivational speech. And I thank you, Gaul, for being here and continuing to come back week after week after week and giving me the privilege of, of pastoring and ministering because how many times have you heard a motivational speech from this pulpit? But you keep coming back. There must be something in God's Word. Amen. Amen. Musicians, come on forward. And let's pray. Father God Almighty, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, oh, we, we, we strive and we try not to be a stumbling block to your will. But even with Peter's good intentions, it still happened. Lord, I pray that you would search our hearts and our minds and remind us that good intentions are often a hindrance to your will. Remind us of how glorious it is that your son is the suffering Christ. And that actually, if we're His disciples, we will suffer right along. And so, God, I pray that You would remind us of Your Word every day this week. As we depart from here, I pray that You would go with us and bring these words that are Your words to our mind. And shape us and and make us into the men and women that You want us to be. And keep us humble, Lord, we pray. But in Your mercy, I pray that You would give us forgiveness just as Jesus, He does forgive Peter and restores him too. This is why we depend on You, Father. This is why we need You. Use this time as we close this worship, Lord. If if those are those who are here who are wrestling and they realize in hearing this Word that they are actually the mouthpiece of the devil and that they are actually being manipulated by Him and are a stumbling block to Your will, Lord, I pray that You would reveal this to each of us in this room who need to hear it and, 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 and just restore us, Lord, into the true mindset that we must have, the mind of Christ, the mind of sacrifice and service and humility. Lord, use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.